Uh, as Troy mentioned, we're continuing on in our Galatians series uh, today. I, I mentioned after our capital campaign that we we're going to spend the rest of our year in Galatians, and you know we're going to kind of ebb and flow in that, meaning that we did five weeks this spring, and then we did a couple of open topics as we had Daryl and then Bill Butterworth, who was great last week, and then we're going to do five weeks now of Galatians, and then when we have some summer speakers come in here, we're going to let them do some open topic stuff as well, and then in August, we're going to pick up Galatians again, and when we get done with this year, we will have actually spent 24 different Sundays in Galatians. I mean, we're taking our time through this book because it is so rich when it comes to us and God and our walk with Him. And, and I got to tell you, I'm digging this because I became a pastor only because I wanted to help people find God in their lives and, and learn how to walk with Him and follow Him faithfully. And though I don't mind doing capital campaigns and building projects and programs and all the leadership stuff that I have to do, that's not what really floats my boat. What I get excited about is when I get to talk to you all about the Lord and how we can grow closer to Him and walk more faithfully and for some of us even find Him for the very first time in salvation. And that's what Galatians is helping us do. So with that said, why don't you bow with me, Cactus and Venue, who's joining us by a video, would you bow with me as well right now and let's commit this time in, our, in the Word to the Lord. Father, I thank you for your Word that you've given us, that it is holy, it is true, everything that it says uh, is good and right when it comes to everything in life, particularly our understanding of you. And so, Father, I pray that as we go to just a couple of verses this morning in helping us understand how we can be justified before you and how we can be in a right standing before you. God, give us wisdom. Open up our hearts and, and our minds to what you might have to say to us today. Make us glad that we met here today and looked at your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So about two years ago, true story, I was in Budapest on a mission trip. I got a call in the early morning hours from my daughter who said to me, Dad, our house flooded. Our house flooded. And my immediate thought was, how does a house flood in the desert? I mean, I've lived all my life in the Midwest, 40 plus years, in a small town outside of Cleveland, Ohio, that had a huge river running right through the center of town, and I never had a house flood, even in that setting, and I moved to the desert, and a house floods. And it was easy how it happened. A toilet had malfunctioned in the middle of the night while Kim and the kids <clears throat> were sleeping, and it flooded our house with 600 gallons of water flowing from the upstairs bathroom all night down into the living room, the dining room, the kitchen, the office, and even the garage. And so it was a mess, needless to say. I called my insurance agent. They had people out there within a matter of hours, and it was a huge job. We lost our house for two months. We had to be in a rental house, and it cost $80,000 to put our house back into order. It was that much damage to our house. But thankfully, I had insurance, and I liked my agent, and they were wonderful, and they, except for the deductible, paid everything, even the rental costs, while being out of our house. But then about eight months later, when the renewal time came for my policy, <laughs> I got a call from my agent. And he nicely informed me that they were going to drop me from my house coverage. 
And I casually mentioned to him that I had been a, 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 a customer for 20 years through four houses with this same company and that I had never once made a house claim. And even though it was a big house claim, I was kind of stunned they were going to drop me. And this guy's a good agent. He's a friend of mine. He said, well, let me see what I can do. Two days later, he called me back, and he said, you know what? I, I, they agreed that if you'll go to a little bit of a higher deductible, that they'll keep you on for right now. And I like my agent, and I like the company, so I stayed with him. And everything was quiet on the Western Front for the last year until about a month ago. And this time, I got a letter. And it didn't have to do with my house. This time it has to do, had to do with my cars. And i got to tell you, it was one of the most nicely well-worded threat letters I've ever gotten in my life. <laughs> I mean, i got to hand it to this company. They, they send the nicest letters out. It was simply sent to notify me that over the last three years, we have three teenage drivers in our family. Over the last three years, we have made three windshield claims for cracked windshields, two hail damage claims, remember that hailstorm, and that each of my teenage drivers have had one accident and between the two, three of them, two tickets, which I didn't think was all that bad, mind you. <laughs> and they were just sending me a letter to remind me, and this was so nicely worded, they sent me a letter to remind me that they were monitoring this and that they wanted to invite me to monitor it with them as we track this stuff. And I called my agent, and I said, I've never gotten a letter like this. I, I said, I, he said, yeah, I don't hear of it very often either. And, and, and I said, it's the most nicely worded letter I've ever gotten. I said, we should use it as a template for the lay people in my church when they send me emails. I said, because it was so nice. I, I, I tell you that story because I am on the verge, as you guys can tell, uh, of being dropped by my insurance company. You need to pray for me. If I have any more claims on my house or my car, in fact, right now one of my windshields is cracked, and I called Gary, and I said the windshield is cracked. He said, fix it on your own. Don't make a claim. <laughs> he said, it's going to send you over the edge. And I tell you that story for this reason. I think, as I mentioned to you before I pray, I like to talk to you about God. I think that many people think God is the same way. I hear it from Christians and non-Christians alike. We think, now, now, now tell me if this isn't true, that, that God is up in heaven monitoring our every behavior, calculating the cost of every mistake and blunder, adding it up on some actuarial table, about ready to send us a letter informing us that he's going to drop us for all of eternity based upon our behavior. I, I think that's the way people think that God is. And so as a response, we say, well, gosh, if I could just live slightly above the curve, if I can just live slightly above all the other people around me so I'm not very high on that actuarial table, if I can just impress God a bit more with my behavior, then maybe, just maybe, I won't get a dropped coverage letter from God. We truly think that God is this way that we get good coverage from him if we just don't have any moral accidents or mistakes. And conversely, if we do cross the line too many times, then we're going to get dropped by God. We think that's how God functions. But the Bible comes along, and I'm telling you guys, it blows away that type of thinking. It completely blows it out of the water. It tells us that God is not this way, that his approach and posture to us and our right standing before him is not how our world functions. And once you understand what God says, and we're going to cover that this morning here, once you understand what God says, it actually becomes liberating, if not scandalous. So what am I talking about? 
If you brought a Bible with you this morning, and Cactus and Venue, if you brought Bibles, I want you to open up to Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to read just two verses and park in front of them this morning, but two very potent and powerful verses. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can open up or you can look up here on the screen or on your outline I put those two verses or maybe follow along with somebody next to you. This is church we're supposed to share. And Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 16. Let me read it for you. It says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. Verse 16 of chapter 2, I believe, is the core central thesis revealing verse in all of Galatians. This is a verse that tells us what the main point of this book is. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't come in the weeks after this because there's a lot more to cover, but I'm telling you, this is the mountaintop of the book of Galatians. We've now climbed the summit. We're at the mountaintop. We're going to explore it from this point on. And you'll notice closely that in verse 16 there, there are three particular, four particular words that are repeated three times. Very interesting. I've taught you guys before that if the Bible repeats itself, kind of like a scratch CD that keeps giving the same words over and over again, you might want to dial into that. God might be trying to say something to us. And so when you look closely, the words justified, and then works and law, and then faith and belief, and then Jesus Christ are each repeated, interestingly, about three times just in one verse. I think God's trying to make a point here. And so for the rest of our time this morning, in order to understand what all this is saying about our spiritual lives before God, I simply want to give you four definitions. But I would put before you that these are four definitions that can forever change the way you approach God, that can forever change your spiritual life now and for all eternity. They are that important of definitions. So let's dive in. And here's the first word, repeated three times, just in verse 16 there. It's the word justified. You noticed it there, justified. And this is a very interesting and powerful word in the Bible when it comes to humanity and God. It's actually a judicial or forensic term in the Bible that literally means, now here is our definition, it means to acquit, to be put right with, to set free. It carries with it the idea that someone is in a right standing with another, that they are justified and okay in their sight. It's the Greek word dikaiao. Then, in the Greeks in Jesus' day, now don't miss this, use this word as a legal term in a court of law to describe somebody representing someone's cause in a court of law to establish their rightness in whatever crime they were being accused of. So if somebody's being accused of a crime in a court of law there, they somehow needed to be acquitted, to be set free, to be justified, to show that they are okay and not guilty. And this was the word that they used, daikaiao, to show that somebody needed to be justified in a court of law in the Greek world. 
But then most interesting is that the New Testament writers picked up this word and now they slapped it on our understanding of us and God. So no longer leaving this word within a Greek court system or legal system, they now applied it to us and God. And here's what it's getting at here in verse 16, that somehow you and I need to be justified before God. We need to be made right with him. We need to be acquitted somehow declared not guilty when it comes to our standing before him. And if you're tracking with me here, you're saying, well, obviously, Jamie, this assumes that there is a problem then with us and God, right? That there's some accusation against us in our standing with God. And you're right. And though Galatians 2 doesn't talk about this here, other parts of the Bible give us clear knowledge on what that problem is. Look at Romans 3, verse 23, and Romans 6, verse 23. Look up here on the screen. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. So it couldn't be more clear. The same simply saying that all humanity have one thing in common, and that's that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. I don't want to ask it right now, but I remember asking a few months ago when I was trying to explain this verse, I, I said to you guys as a congregation, I said, anybody here ever want to claim that they, at this point in their life, have lived a sinless and perfect life? And I remember somebody actually raised their hand, <laughs> yes. And I didn't know what to do with it in a crowd this size, and I didn't want to embarrass the guy and say liar or something like that. So I actually kind of just moved on in an awkward way, which doesn't happen to me very often. So I won't ask the question, but I got to tell you, if I did ask the question, I'd be stunned if anybody raised their hand. And because I'm a pretty good guy myself, and I know lots of good people. And even among the creme de la creme of good people that I know, none of them would claim to have lived a sinless and perfect life. But you see, that's precisely the problem. Because as long as you're measuring up against your neighbor, that's good and fine. As long as you're measuring up against the likes of Howard Stern and Mick Jagger, then you're in good standing. But if all of a sudden you have to measure up to God, which is what Romans 3 is saying there, that you fall short of the glory of God, then all of a sudden you realize now we have a problem with him. And it's simple. God is here, and on your best day, you're here. And yet look at it with me. There's a gap. There's a gap between how God wants you to be and how you are. Even though you might be good compared to your neighbor, even though you might be better than you were last year, you're still very far from him, from his glory and his goodness. And the Bible says that's a problem because we're separated then from God. Death has come to our souls, for the wages of sin is death because of that. And so if we're ever going to have a hope of connecting with God now, let alone for all of eternity, we somehow need to be justified before him. Give me a head nod that you all understand this, that we need to bridge that gap and somehow be acquitted, remember it's a legal term, be made right with God. That's the simple teaching here of Galatians chapter 2. Now, once you understand that, what this word justified means and the issue that it's begging, the obvious question becomes, how? How is it that you and I get justified with God? So much so that he's willing to declare us not guilty, acquitted, the slate wiped clean, so that we might have a right standing with him, both now and for all of eternity. 
And though Galatians 2 is going to go on here in verse 16 to explain this to us in just a second, how we can have a right standing with God, it's interesting that it first shares how we do not become justified. And it's crucial to dial into this because I'm telling you, many people today, even many Christians, don't get this. And it's the second set of words that we need to clearly define, and they are the words works and law. Works and law. Look again at verse 16. It says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. So whatever these works of the law are, we're told here that they aren't going to be that which justifies us before God. Now, here's the issue before us then. I've been a Christian now for 33 years, 32 years. I've been a pastor for almost 25. And I hear Christians say all the time, and you do too, well, we're not justified by works, but we're justified by faith alone. We're not justified by works. And I want to say to people, give me a good working definition of a work. In other words, Christians use terms all the time, and I'm not sure they can define their terms. If you had to tell somebody what is a work of the law, how would you define that? I want to give you, I guess you could call it Jamie's definition based upon a earned Masters of Divinity and studying the Bible for a few years, what I think the biblical data is on what a work of the law is. Look up here on the screen and it's this. I would submit to you that it's any human effort based on an external or internal moral standard. I know that's awfully technical, but I'm telling you, dive into this. It's any human effort based on an external or internal moral standard. That's a work of the law according to the Bible. It's any time that you and I try to muster up any of our human energy and reserves and do a good thing based upon an external standard, we'll define that in a minute, or even an internal standard that might be within you. That's a good or work of the law, a good work. Now, to best see this, you need to understand that the Bible talks about two different kinds of law, two different kinds of moral standards that operate in human lives. The first is the Old Testament Jewish law known as the Torah, all the various do's and don'ts that appear in the Old Testament canon. So whether it's the moral law, the Ten Commandments, or the civil law, all the various and sundry laws that guided the nation Israel, when Galatians here refers to a work of the law in verse 16, it's referring to all these commands that were found in the Old Testament law that God wanted his people to adhere to because it was his standard, an external standard imposed upon them for them to live faithful and righteous lives and to maybe even be justified before him. So to fill in the blanks, it's commandments like, you shall have no other gods before me, do not lie, do not commit adultery, do not covet your neighbor's wife or any of his possessions. Even commandments like don't use unbalanced scales in business or don't allow pride to grip your soul in relationships. Hundreds of examples throughout the Proverbs as well as the law of commands that God has given us when it comes to what he wants for us. It's his external standard. So I think Deuteronomy 16.20 says it best. Look up here on the screen. When it says justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land the Lord your God is giving you. 
So obey the law, live it perfectly, live it righteously, and you just might be justified before God. That's the external standard based on a work of the law. But here's the question I would ask you, and that is what do you do then with somebody who doesn't have this external standard? But what do you do with somebody like me, who for the first 18 years of their life never went to church, wasn't really raised with any religious teaching, in fact, I'm embarrassed when I first became a Christian at age 17 and 18, I just assumed that Jesus wrote the whole Bible. I mean, Jesus is a religious dude. The Bible's a religious book. I put two and two together, and I was stunned when I found out there was this guy named Paul and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and Moses and people like that. I, I, I'd never read the Bible, so I assumed Jesus wrote it all. What do you do with about 95% of China? that's never read a Bible or been exposed to the Old Testament or let alone the New Testament, what do you do with people who don't have an external standard? Are they exempt? Do they not have a moral compass for their life? Well, no, not at all. But look at what Romans 2, verses 14 to 15 say in talking about this exact issue about non-Jews, Gentiles, who don't have an external standard. This is very important for where we're going here this morning with verse 16 of Galatians 2. Look at Romans 2. It says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law, here it is, is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So it's real clear. All humanity has a conscience. We've been made in the image of God. And being made in his image, we have a conscience that he has given us. And this conscience, do you notice here, tells us right from wrong. This conscience, in a very real way, is a law written on our hearts that accuses us when we do wrong and excuses us even when we do right. And so here's how it works. When you lie to a good friend, but you haven't read the Ten Commandments that says you shouldn't lie, your conscience still tells you that this is wrong and that truth-telling is by far better. Or when you cheat and cut corners like on your taxes and you haven't read the Proverbs that says you shouldn't use unbalanced scales, your conscience still tells you this is wrong and that you should do better. I mean, even our pets show us this. Do you have a pet? I have a dog at home. I have a few of them, but one of them's name is Callie. And Callie is really sensitive but fairly bright. And so one of the things that we taught Callie very early on is a no-brainer for us, don't get into the garbage. So you're not to shove your nose into the, under the sink and, and get into the garbage and strew it all over the uh, family room. And yet there's times now, even though she's four or five, that I'll forget to latch the door, and then I'll be upstairs studying, and I'll hear a commotion downstairs, and I'll come downstairs, and there will be garbage all over the kitchen. Now, here's the key question. Where's Callie at that moment? We all know where Callie is. She's cowering in the corner of another room. And when I say to her, Callie, get in here, she will slink into the room with her tail between her legs because she knows that she has done something wrong, right? What's going on there? She's got a conscience. In this case, based on an external standard that we have set for her in our house, but that she knows very well and she feels bad about it, and that's her conscience telling her that she's done something wrong based upon law. I had somebody come up to me after last night, and they said, do you really believe that animals have consciences? 
I said, yeah, I do. I don't want to get into it because I believe that animals have souls, but don't ask me if they have eternal souls because my wife won't let me talk about that in public. But I, I, I do believe that animals do have souls and that your soul tells you what is right or wrong based on the conscience because it's of your thoughts and your feelings. And animals, even the animal kingdom, has that. And here's my point, is that if animals have that, then of course you and I have that as ones who have been given the Spirit of God inside of us as Christians and a spirit inside of us as creations of God, given the breath of life made in His image, of course we have consciences. And here's the point of Galatians 2. It's the reason I tell you about all this law stuff. Now, don't miss this. And that is that Galatians 2 comes along and it tells us that there is no way that any person can be justified before God on the basis of these good works whether it's a particular law or set of works based on an external standard like the Old Testament law or an internal standard like your conscience in Romans 2. It's all the same. Trying to justify yourself before God by attempting to rack up enough good works is an exercise, it's an adventure in missing the point. You can't earn your way to heaven. You can't earn your way to being justified before God. And, you know, over the years, people say to me, but why? I'm a really good person. Why? And I'm like, well, it's really not complicated. And again, I'll, I'll show it to you with my hands. It's that simple. Our first graders get this. Because you're here and God's here. And even on your best day, when you're like firing on all eight cylinders and, and you're becoming like Gandhi-like, Nelson Mandela-like, like, like Mother Teresa-like, think of any great religious person, and you're doing really good, you're like Billy Graham. The reality is, is that you're still down here, and God is still up here. And he says no amount of good works is going to make it so that you don't fall short of his glory anymore. And so we need to forever jettison this silly notion in our heads that we can somehow work our way to heaven. It's actually the opposite. If you keep that notion in your mind, it will keep you in death, death of your soul. I spent last couple of weeks, as many of you know, in, in, in Poland, Eastern Europe, uh, doing a mission trip with some people from our church. And at one point when we were heading home, we were heading home through Krakow, Poland, and we spent an afternoon, a very sobering afternoon, at Auschwitz and Birkenau, which were two of the biggest concentration camps that the Nazis set up during World War II. And when you walk into Auschwitz, it's an extremely sobering event because you're walking into a place where 1.5 million people were lost their lives, most of them Jewish, about 60 years ago. I want to show you a picture of what happens when you first walk into Auschwitz. You walk in, and if you can get me a picture, are you going to try to throw on the side screen still, Nick, or not? If, there it goes. That's on the side screen. If you notice here, when you walk into Auschwitz, look up there on the screen, and Cactus and Venue, hopefully you can see it on your screen. This is the main gate walking into Auschwitz. You can see the barbed wire and the gate that's lifted up there that says halt. And you'll notice that above the gate, and this is exactly how it was 60 years ago, is the German phrase, Arbeit macht frei, which translated means work makes you free. And that's what the Nazis were trying to convince all the people coming into the concentration camp, mainly Jews, is that if you work hard, if you go with us on this, you will someday be free. And it was a lie from very evil places because the Nazis knew that within just a few hours, many of them were going to lose their lives in gas chambers. 
And for the lucky ones who did actually survive the first few days, that same work was going to kill them because they were going to work them to their very deaths. And most people didn't last any more than six months. And 90-some-odd percent of people who entered into Auschwitz didn't ever come out. Work makes you free. It was a lie from a very evil place. And by the way, as a quick side note, one of the reasons that they've kept Auschwitz going uh, is that they take three million students from all over Europe through Auschwitz every year, and they show them this sobering place, a three-hour tour of Auschwitz and Birkenau, and their main message is, don't ever let this happen again. Not on your watch. And, and it's a very moving experience, very sobering to be there. I want you to latch on to that phrase, work makes you free. See, I think Satan, the evil one, says the same thing to you and I today. I think he says the same thing to every seeker today. If you just work hard, if you just can rack up enough good works, then you won't get that drop coverage letter from God. And we buy into it. We drink the Kool-Aid. We believe that, and it's just not true. That keeps you in prison, and that eventually will lead to the death of your soul. And so if not that, then what is it? Well... Here is what God goes on to say is how you and I can be justified before God. Look at verse 16 once again. It says, through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So two more definitions in our time remaining. And the next one is obviously we need to find faith. We need to, find, to define belief. Now, before I give you the definition of faith and belief, because again, I'm not sure many Christians are really good at defining what faith and belief are, and we're going to solve that today. Let me let you know that the words faith and belief there are interchangeable in the Bible. I said to you before that that word faith and belief is repeated three times in Galatians 2.16. Here it is, because it appears once as belief and twice as faith. And, it's yet, and yet it's one Greek word in the original language that Galatians was written in. It's the Greek word pistuo that is translated sometimes belief, sometimes faith, because they are interchangeable. They're getting at the same thing. And so with that understanding, let me give you a good working definition of faith even before we talk about what the object of our faith is. Let's just focus on faith right now, and here it is. And that is that faith is having confidence in something or someone to the point of fully trusting. That's what faith is. It's having confidence in someone or something to the point of fully trusting. Now, now I know some of you are waning here. I can see it in your eyes. But, but, but bear with me here because you need to dial into this. As you look closely at that definition, you will notice that there are two key components to faith. And they are confidence and trust. And I would submit to you that though they are very different things, that they are both important to faith. You see, confidence is that act of believing. It's that act of accepting. It's that, that act of knowing some, about something to the point where you say, yeah, I got confidence in that. But trusting is the point then when you act upon it. Trust is receiving and responding. It's resting your weight on that which you have confidence in. So let me give you a very simple illustration here. As many of you know, I, I preach with a stool like this next to me because sometimes I like to sit down when I'm trying to make a more personal point to you. Look closely. When I sit down, I'm usually trying to make something a bit more of a personal point. I'm also tired, and it's nice to have a stool here when I'm talking to you. So I have this stool next to me. Now, 
Uh, say for the sake of argument, it's a pretty sturdy stool. It's, it's actually pretty thick. It's made all of wood. And, and say for the sake of argument, I have confidence that this stool can hold my 200, let's just leave it at that, my 200-pound frame uh, on it. And, 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 that, and I believe, I have faith, I have confidence that this stool can hold me. It's well made, and I know that if I sat on it, it could hold me. But imagine what would happen if having said that, I then walked away from it and said, but there isn't a chance I'm going to sit on it. I, I, I'm not going to sit on it. I, I, I'm not going to trust it. I'm not going to respond to it. What would you say to me? I, I think you'd say, well, Jamie, you're halfway there. You're having a crisis of faith because you got half of it. You say that you believe it can do it, and you have confidence inside of you that it can, but because you're unwilling to trust it, you're not really exercising faith, right? That's what you would say. But conversely, if I said I have confidence that the stool can hold me, and then it'd be funny if it broke now, but then I, I sit on it, and, and, and I sat on it and said, see, you would say now Jamie has trusted that this stool can hold him. Do you see the difference there? And see, I think many Christians do, do something similar with that. I, I, I love it when I start talking to people that maybe were like I was seven, when I was 17 and hadn't been exposed very much to Christianity, and they'll say, what does it take to be a Christian? And I'll say, like we're talking about today, I'll say, well, you have to believe and trust that, that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, and, and that and your, your, your right standing with God only comes through faith and trust in Him. And how many times has this happened to us where somebody, when we'll say to somebody, they'll say, well, I believe that. Yeah, I, I went to Mass when I was a kid, and I went through CCD when I was 11, and I believe in Jesus. Or, or, or I was a Presbyterian growing up, you know, and I went through Confirmation when I was 13, and, and I believe in Jesus. But yet you sense something's not quite there. You ever had that experience? Something's not quite, they're, they're kind of cavalier about it. They're kind of, they haven't really put their full weight and trust in him. You ever had that experience? So, so I think that that's what the chair is about. When somebody says, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and, you know, I got confidence in him, but then they won't sit on the chair. They won't put their very lives trusting in him. Then you got to wonder if they're not having a crisis of faith. you got to wonder if they really have faith. They're halfway there, but they're not fully there. You see, faith only becomes faith when you have both confidence and trust. The Reformers said it this way years ago, using the Latin. They said you need to have notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Latin words meaning knowledge, assent, and trust. You can't just stop at knowledge and assent. Yeah, 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 I believe that. You need to have trust, which means that your emotions, your thoughts, and your will are behind that which you say you have faith in. And when that happens, now you're talking about faith. Think about your marriage. Same thing, right? If your spouse says they love you, but they never treat you right, they never trust you, then that's a faithless marriage. They can say all they want, but until there's confidence and trust, it's not faith. Now, with that understanding, let's talk about the object of our faith. Because obviously it's telling us here in Galatians 2.16 that it's through faith, confidence, and trust that we are going to be justified before God. But who is that confidence and trust in? Well, we've already established it's not in ourselves, right? It's not in our good works. It's not in culture. It's not in mom and dad. It's not in a religion. It's not in church. So our confidence in none of that silly stuff. The Bible didn't mention any of that when it comes to what our confidence and trust should be in. Our confidence and trust is in Jesus. And three times it says it here. Look again one last time at verse 16. Through faith in Jesus Christ. So we've also believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. 
And the question that always comes up at this point is why Jesus, right? I mean, I've been down this road so many times in the last 30 years, it's just becoming routine where I'll be talking to, say, a friend of mine from the old days or somebody here in Scottsdale, and I'll be explaining to them the gospel and how Jesus Christ has transformed my life. And sometimes they'll just be really honest with me and say, Jamie, why do you guys have to confuse everything by bringing Jesus into this? I mean, as soon as you do that, it just shows how narrow-minded you are. I mean, why can't you just be embracive of everything? Why do we have to say that Jesus is the only way to be justified? Because golly, that means that Buddha's not the way, Muhammad's not the way, and Krishna's not the way. And so golly, Jamie, why can't you just be a liberal believer in God and just let it go with that? And here's the reason why. Let's define who Jesus is. Look up here on the screen for our last definition. See, as long as you think that Jesus is just some good guy then you really don't have much leg to stand on. But if you define Jesus as the Bible does, this way, now we're talking a different game. Jesus is defined as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the divine Savior of humankind. And now we're in a different ballgame, right? I don't have time to go into it today because it's really for another sermon. In fact, if you want to get online, I did a whole series this time last year on our statement of faith. And in one of those, I did a whole section on the Trinity and why we believe as Christians in one God who is in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how each one of those three persons is still God, but you only have one God. It's a mystery, but I explained the Trinity. You can go back and get that. But that's very important. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ was not just a mere man, but that Jesus was God come to earth. We call it the incarnation, God becoming a man and living among us, and that this was the second person of the Trinity eternally existing, now becoming a man. As John would say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As Jesus himself said, before Abraham was, I am. I eternally exist. As I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 1 would affirm to us, it would say, and quoting the Psalms, but of the Son, Jesus, He, God the Father, says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So it's a no-brainer who Jesus is according to the biblical data, that He is the eternal God come to us in the form of a human being, but why? Now dial into this. To be the Savior of humankind. Again, go back to that simple illustration we looked at earlier. You're here. God is here. Somehow you need to be justified before Him. Somehow you need to be declared not guilty. You can't do it on your own. You need divine help. And what the Bible says is that Jesus is the one who has become your Savior so that you might now have a relationship with God. Through his death on a cross, he bore your sin. He paid the penalty that you should have paid. He took your sin upon him so that you might be justified, made right before God. What you couldn't do for yourself, he did for you. And, and folks, that's the gospel. And that's why Jesus Christ is so important. Maybe look at it this way. If you could self-atone for your own life, that would be one thing. But you can't. You cannot self-atone for your own sin. It's too great, and the distance between you and God is too much. And so you need some outside help, and that outside help has come to you in the form, in the man, Jesus Christ who was God sent here to help you. 
And what the Bible is telling us is that if we would stop trying to work our way to heaven and put our faith, our confidence and trust in the Savior that God provided for us, then, and only then, do we come into a right standing before God. And so let me show you how powerful these four words are that we've been looking at here and how so personal they are to our lives. If you've noticed here, we've just looked at four words today. We looked at justified, this idea of being made right before God, and then we defined very clearly what works and law are, any human effort based upon some external or internal moral standard, and then we clearly defined what faith and belief are, that faith and belief is this idea of putting your confidence and trust in someone or something, and then we wrapped up here by saying that it's only in Jesus that God wants us to put our faith in, whom we should put our faith in. Now, here's the whole point of Galatians 2.16. Here's how God wants you to wrap it up. The first thing he says is cross off works and law forever as part of the equation of how you're going to be in a right standing before God. Get it out of your vocabulary. Get it out of your mind. Jettison that from your life because it's not going to happen. Work does not make you free. Didn't work in a concentration camp 60 years ago. It won't work for you now. What the Bible says is to take your faith that you already have, by the way, that's inside of you, and place it squarely on Jesus Christ. Take your confidence and your trust that you've been placing in yourself, in society, in your parents, in your spouse, in your work, in your 401k, whatever it might be, and place that firmly and fully in Jesus. Now watch this. And the Bible says the second that you do that and you don't have to do anything, God says you are justified before me. Isn't that incredible? March 11th, 1981, somebody explained to me this gospel, the clear gospel of the Bible, and said, Jamie, you can't work your way to heaven. You've been trying for 18 years and you've made a mess of things. You need to believe and trust in Jesus Christ and him only for eternal life. And, and I prayed that night, and those sparks didn't fly, and firecrackers didn't go off, and I, I didn't wake up completely righteous the next morning. In heaven, between me and God, that moment he justified me before him. Isn't that incredible? Amen. God said, I see Jamie completely different from that moment on. The Bible uses phrases like these, that he used to see my sin as red as scarlet, and now it's as white as snow. He has thrown my sin in the sea of forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west, he threw my sin from me. Wow. Completely justified in a moment by understanding and placing my faith in Jesus Christ. And I no longer have to work for it. He did the work for me. Folks, the Bible calls this the good news. I remember years ago when somebody first said to me, well, that's the good news, I corrected them and said, no, it's the great news. They said, you haven't read the Bible yet enough, Jamie. It's called the good news, but it is great. It is great. But I thought this is the greatest news to ever hit humankind, and I'm going to spend the rest of my life talking about this. So what does this mean for you and I today? Two applications in our time remaining very quickly, and Cactus and Venue, two applications. The first is that for those of you who have already understood this and applied this through, in your life through faith and confidence in Jesus, my main encouragement to you today, and don't overlook this, is to don't fall back into a works mentality. Because you see, I see many Christians doing this today. I see many Christians that when I ask them, you know, how, why, you know, I know you're a Christian, but what is it that saves you? I hear them say, why well, go to church? 
and, 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 and I go to Sunday school, and I'm a really good guy, and I've memorized a bunch of Bible verses, and I give away a lot of money. And I, I want to say to that, I want to just say, big whip. I mean, honestly, you do all that? Do you think any of that saves you? What's the answer? No. The only thing that saves you is what Jesus did for you and your response of faith in Him. And so let's forever cement that one and stop trying to describe our salvation as a salvation of works. And as Daryl's even going to teach you in a, couple, in a few weeks here when he gets to Galatians 3, Paul's even going to indict the Galatians. Now, now check this one out. He's going to say, you're even trying to be sanctified by works now. He's going to say, after having begun in the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by the flesh? What silliness and nonsense is that? So even as Christians now, when we mess up, we say, well, I'm just going to try really hard to never do that again. And I'm just going to muster up all my internal reserves based on an external or internal standard of righteousness. And I'm going to muster it all up within me. I promise God I'll never do it again. You ever find yourself doing that to God? And what happens? Oh, my gosh, you do it again. And you think, I'm a failure. And you are. But the reality is, the reality is, is that God could have predicted that one. Because you're still living with a works mentality. So you're saying, what should I do when I mess up? <laughs> do what Hebrews 4 says. Now, now, don't you love this one? Hebrews 4 says that when you mess up, fall on the throne of grace. And thank God for forgiveness. And ask Him to give you mercy and help in your time of need. Wow. See, that's a different response than saying, I'm going to muster up all my energy and I'm never going to do this again. No, I, I just go to God and I say, God, I did it again. I messed up again. And I know if I just try to do it myself, I'm going to fail again. But I know you can help me. I, I know that you've made me more righteous over time. And so somehow I know that my sanctification, God, is going to be tied to your grace. So, so give me grace. We, we can talk more about that. But just commit today to, to not being a person of works when it comes to your justification and even your sanctification, but a person of grace. And then secondly, there's those of you here today that have never understood the gospel as it's been explained to you today. You're like me years ago, that I thought I understood it. I'd been through, I'd been through catechism. I'd been through confirmation, and, and I had done the Jesus thing, and I just assumed that I was in. And then when somebody explained to me what it really takes to be justified before God, I was like, you're kidding me. I, I never knew that. And so again, on March 11th, 1981, was the day I really received Christ for my justification as my sin bearer. And some of you are ready to do that today because the light has gone on in your head. So here's what I want to do. I want every head bowed right now. Would you please honor me and just do that? Let's just bow because we need to, to do some business between us and God. And if you are somebody here today or in Cactus and Venue, because you're with us there today with your head bowed, if you are somebody here today that is in that first category where you've been saved for years or maybe short time and you definitely have come to Christ for your justification, but man, you just fall back into that works mentality to try to continue to justify yourself before God and you need to be freed up once again today through prayer to embrace Him by faith, ongoing faith. If that's you today, I want you to raise your hand so that I can see that and I can pray for you today. Good. Just raise your hand. And Cactus and Venue, raise your hand too, even though I can't see you. I'm going to pray for you. Raise your hand nice and high here so I can see you. Good. I'll pray for you. You can put your hand down. I'm going to pray for you in just a minute. And secondly, if you're somebody here today that has finally understood the gospel and all of its simplicity and profundity and you want to personalize it for your life, 
if you want to receive Jesus Christ today for your initial justification as your Lord and your Savior, I want you to raise your hand where you are right now. This is just between you and God. So I see you good. Raise your hand now, nice and high, because I want to pray for you. This is between you and God. Very good. You can put your hand down, and and let's pray. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, this is a holy moment for us as individuals before you and as a congregation of faith in Jesus. And Lord, today we've talked about very candidly, but hopefully very clearly, uh, what the gospel is, and more importantly, who the gospel is, and that's your son Christ. And Father, i got to believe that everyone here today has an innate desire inside of them, because we're made in your image, to know you, to follow you, to find our sufficiency and our satisfaction in you. And that's why we're here. And so, Father, I pray for those first who raise their hands there to receive you for their initial justification before you, to receive Christ today for the first time, that, Lord, where they sit, they admit the gap that they feel in their lives, the gap from you. And, Lord, today they realize that that gap has been bridged by Jesus Christ and his death on a cross for their sins. And, Lord, right where they sit, they place their faith, their confidence, and their trust squarely and firmly in your Son, Jesus Christ. And they receive Jesus into their lives as Lord and as Savior. And Father, I pray that as they receive Christ today, as they pray that prayer, that Lord, you give them that initial burst of assurance that they are yours and that you are theirs. And may they mark today as the day that they accepted you and put their faith in you. Mark today as their spiritual birthday, the day that they came home to you. And Lord, may you give them that joy and that assurance. Father, I pray for the other group that raised their hand, for those, Lord, who, like me so many times over the years, have, have started off well, and yet, Lord, it's so easy by about Wednesday of the week to fall back into a works mindset where I'm just going to muster up all my fleshly energy to defeat sin and live the Christian life. And what a futility that is. And so, Father, I pray for them that as they recommit themselves today to faith and to faith alone in Christ, as the source of grace and as the source of power that as they tap into the power of your spirit and to your son Jesus through faith, that, Lord, you again would encourage them today that their journey is a journey of grace and it's through your grace that they are empowered to receive forgiveness, love, and power from you to live for you and walk with you. May that be the assurance they get today. Lord, for all of us, may we walk out of here today in full assurance of faith, knowing that as we've understood you rightly, And as we relate to you in the way that you have shown us that, Lord, we are not just guaranteed of eternal life, but life even here at now, abundant life that wells up in our souls. May that be our experience. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name with great thanksgiving. And we all say together, amen. God bless you. We'll see you all next Sunday.